0: Okay, one um, area where sin, I think, quite clearly shows itself in the modern world is in people's seeming inability to relate well to one another. One area where we see sin, so obviously in the world, is in interpersonal communication or interpersonal relationships, right? Those things are falling apart. Uh, where would we go for an example? We would go obviously to social media, I suppose. So you know as well as I do, right, that if this morning you and I on our phones went on to Twitter, and if anyone has done that already, come back uh, to scripture. But if we went on to Twitter uh, just now and we looked at any of the comments under whatever in the world is trending just now, what would we find? We would find abuse, right? Wouldn't there be hatreds, People ridiculing each other. So we see that there, that sin, interpersonal sin in people's relationships. We also see it in the commonly reported effects of lockdown. Isn't that right? Time and time again, we are hearing people whose relationships have just gone sour, they've gone south, that there's newfound bitterness, there's resentment. Why? Simply because people have not been seeing each other as much as they were previously. We're living in a really weird time, aren't we? It's a very strange time where people are struggling to relate to each other with even a semblance of common decency, even semblance of basic decency. Well, if you cast your mind back to our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, which was a while ago, I think, wasn't it? You maybe can remember what John Stott the famous London minister once said about us. Do you remember that famous quote? I banged this quote when we were in the Sermon of the Mount. I flogged it till it was dead. But John Stott said basically that we are to be a counterculture, that the church is to be a Christian Counterculture. Now, if you consider that for just a second, I wonder if you see the opportunity at hand. Because in this section, these verses that we've just read together, do you know what Peter's gonna do? He's gonna show us how Christians are to relate to other people. He's gonna show the, the Christian side of the coin, how we relate to others. And I'm telling you this for nothing. This is so countercultural. Do you see what might happen? If we embrace Peter's teaching here, if we really take it to heart, you and I will shine in London. If we hear what Peter says about how a Christian relates to others, we really will stand out for Jesus in this really most hostile of ages. Now, in this section, let me be precise about it. In this section, I think Peter instructs us how to relate to three groups of people, okay? Or he instructs us to relate to three persons, So if you've got your Bible there, if you've got a copy of Scripture, let's work through that. Let's think about the first one. So first of all in chapter 3, do you know we read it and what we find is that we are this morning right now, we are first of all face to face with our fellow believer. That's the first thing that happens in, in this section. We're face to face this morning with our fellow Christian Right, you you could be tired this morning, anything could be happening in your life, but I do think this is true, that you should be excited about this portion of scripture. Tell you why there should be excitement. Like, previously, you'll have noticed that what Peter's doing is speaking to various different factions in the Christian church. Isn't that what he's been doing? If you think back a wee bit, a few weeks ago he was speaking to slaves, so he's speaking to a specific faction of people in the first century church. Then were you here last week? You remember that? You won't forget last week. Do you remember who he spoke to? He spoke, he didn't just speak to women. He spoke to wives. No, he didn't just speak to wives. He spoke to Christian wives. No, he didn't just speak to Christian wives. He spoke to Christian wives who were particularly married to unbelieving spouses. Very specific, right? There's specific faction within the church. Well, why should you be excited here? Have a look. What's the first word? First word is finally. So we know that we're coming to the end of the central section of this epistle. What's the next bit? So it's finally all y'all, isn't it? It's finally, finally, all of you. Do you see why it's exciting? Here, Peter is not just talking to a faction of of Christians, not a faction. He's talking to he's talking to all professing believers. He's talking to everyone in the room who professes faith. Why is it exciting? Peter is very. Very explicitly speaking to you. This morning, you. What does he do? Well, in this first part, he takes you by the shoulders. So Peter puts his hands on your shoulders, and as I just said, he turns you to face a fellow Christian, your right eye eye with your fellow believer. And what Peter does is he whispers into your ear five traits that should mark your relationship with that person. Okay, five qualities, right? Now, I'm going to do something uh, unusual and welcome, I think, just now. I'm just going to shut up, okay? I'm going to be quiet for a second, because this is what I want you to do. I want you to look again at the five qualities. Verse 8, have a look at them, read them a couple of times, and I want to know, do you notice anything unusual about it, or anything particular about the list. Do you see? Have a look. See, with our Western mindset, we read that, don't we, just sequentially. We read that in verse 8, and we read that and just assume it's just like one after another. It's just a list that Peter's putting together. Now, you've got to understand that's not what you've got there. What you've got is, wait, is a chiasm. It's a chiastic structure And everybody remembers what that is. Don't you? The chiasm of chiastics. Yeah, I can tell even behind your masks that you're all saying, yeah, we remember absolutely vividly remember what that is. That's when a biblical author works in pairs. Do you remember? This is where the biblical author starts at the outer edges of a list or a section. He works in pairs and he works in the way. Has everyone got it? Yeah? Works in pairs. First, last, then works in the way in order to highlight a central section. So look at the, look at the pairs with me for a second. What have we got? Have a look. So look at the first one and the last one. And maybe you'll see. Yeah, it is a pair. Do you see it? Look, you've got both unity of mind. And you could say you've got humility of mind if we want to play on it. Right? Do you see how it's a pair at least? Do you? Well, what's, what's unity of mind? What's he calling for there? Let me tell you what it's not. So the, the uh, Apostle Peter here is not saying to the church that there has to be uniformity of thinking. So Peter is not saying in Scripture, everyone in the room, everyone who's a Christian online, we have to think exactly the same, but every matter under the sun. It's not that idea. It's the idea of harmony. Which in a way is even more challenging. It's the idea that the Christian is to first the community of faith. Isn't that incredibly challenging? It's the idea that the Christian is to prioritize the covenant community, prioritize the church over and above our own personal felt needs and desires. That's the idea of unity of mind. What's the other side to it? What's the last one? A humility of minds. So I can just turn that to you and say, what's that? What's that? It's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Don't you think so? So it's, it's the idea that in the church and with the other people in this room, you and I are to do everything, kill our pride, to resist our pride. In fact, does the Apostle Paul not put this beautifully in Romans 12? You ready for it? He says to you, never, ever be wise. In your own sight, we are never to think more of ourselves than our fellow believers. Right? What do you think? Do you not think that that first pair speaks to our attitudes to our fellow believers? Well, move in the way. Come on, let's work in pairs. Look at verse. Look at the qualities in two and four. It's quality two, quality four. Don't they speak to our affections? Do you see what he says now? He says, with our fellow believers, with the people here, with our fellow Christians, we're to have both a sympathy and a tender heart. Now, I reckon you would agree with us that we can almost throw a blanket over those two because they're so similar. Can't we? Sympathy and a tender heart. They're very close together. And it's this idea. Christian friends, we are called by scripture to suffer alongside our fellow Christians. You and I are called to empathize with our fellow believers. Do we not find that really challenging? The idea that we are, <laughs> we are supposed to be so close to our fellow Christians and the people in this room that what they go through, we go through, As though it were happening to us. Like, the apostle Paul was not kidding when he said, you rejoice. If people in here are rejoicing, that should breed rejoicing. And when people are weeping in our congregation, such should be our closeness to them that we don't force anything, but we find ourselves weeping alongside them. Now, let me just pause for a second. Do you remember what I just said a moment ago? I said that a chiastic pattern or a chiastic structure exists partly to highlight, it exists to highlight the central idea, the central word. Could I ask, would you look at that? What is the central quality or trait? Do we see it here? primarily Peter is concerned that we should possess, you and I should possess a brotherly love, a brotherly love. So maybe, a, an, I don't know, maybe, maybe an illustration will help us at this point. So I would ask you to do this. I'd ask you to think about um, little Knox Amorim for a moment. We're thinking a lot about the Amorims, aren't we? So that, that should be all right. We can think about uh, little Knox. I, I, I guess most people in the room know who Knox Amorim is. Uh, for those who are watching online... Uh, not, uh, one, of our, one of our elders, Gabriel, uh, and his wife, Sodrea, have just welcomed their third child into the world, a little boy that they've named Knox. Now, you think about his situation. Think about Knox's situation. He has b- been born, what, a few months ago, a few weeks, a few months ago. He comes into the world into what situation? So he comes into the world, and he is not isolated, and he is not independent. The point I'm making is Knox comes into the world into a series of different relationships, doesn't he? So he has the he comes in, he's born into a relationship with his mom with Sudrea. Yeah, more than that. Who else? He comes in and immediately he is in this relationship that's formed with his dad. You know, this real lively relationship with Gabriel. Is that it? It's not. We can't forget Leah or Boaz uh, this morning. So Knox is born into this Quite complicated, quite complex, but definitely a committed relationship with siblings. Now, this is the point. When Peter here is speaking of Philadelphia, when he's speaking of brotherly love, he pretend. Peter at this point is not saying We have to just kind of imagine that we have a relationship with each other that resembles that relationship that siblings have. He's not saying pretend to be siblings. Peter is saying here, that is actually how it really is in the church. We don't have to pretend, spiritually speaking, that we really are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you just think about the structure and the flow of the book. How does he begin the book? What's the metaphor they uses? When we come to faith, when we come to Christ, we're born. How does that happen? By the will of the father. What happens? Do we come in isolated? No, we have this vital, vibrant relationship now with our heavenly father. Does it stop there for you? No, we get in a chapter three and he says, ah, yes, you have other relationships. You have been Born and you into other committed relationships. And what does that mean? That means that just as you and I hope that Knox, Leah, and Boaz, as they grow up, we hope, don't we, that they will look out for each other. Don't we want that? And we want Knox and the, the, the kids, we want them to defend each other. As they grow up, we want them when they argue. Because anyone who's got siblings in here knows that, that that's that's far from the course, right? We argue, fight. We want Knox, Leah, and Boaz. We want them to remain loyal through those arguments and tough times. And just like that, Peter says that should be our expression of this brotherly love. The call here is for you to live out the reality of your family bond, our family bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I end this part with a question for you. As you look at verse 8 and the traits that God lays before you, does it sound as though you are being described? Unity, humility, sympathy, tenderness. I mean, for Christians outside of, you know, Presbyterian setting, do you and I demonstrate real humility to them? Do we unity? What about to the people in the room? What about to the Christians watching who are part of LCPC? Do you and I, do we display a genuine tenderness of heart and a, a genuine sympathy? If not, you're surely with me that this single verse drives us to pray. Don't you think so? Doesn't it? Should you and I not this week, should we not repent where we don't show these qualities? Should we not plead with God that he would change us and mature us, that we might demonstrate all the more these qualities? Demonstrate love to whom? To our family of faith. So, a Christian believer. Second thing we see here. Is that we are face to face with a hostile unbeliever, a hostile unbeliever. I hope you can, I hope you can see what happens in this section of scripture. Honestly, I, I want you to see it for yourself. So, so Peter's shown you a Christian and how we should live with our fellow believer and how to relate in this hostile world, how to relate well to them. But do you see what happens? Peter now puts his hands back on your shoulders, and he turns you, and do you see what he does? He turns you not just to an unbeliever, but Peter actually turns you towards someone who is actively hostile, this time to the Christian faith. That's in verse 9. Now, before we consider how we are supposed to act to a hostile unbeliever, I think just for a second we should think about how relevant this is, surely, to your life and to my life. Think about what we said right at the beginning of First Peter. Do you remember what we said? We said that these people, this Christian church at the time that he's writing to, they weren't facing, you know, overt persecution at this stage. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about, like this Asia Minor, this these these churches here, they're not facing, you know, physical attacks necessarily, not in abundance. It's more opposition in infancy at this point. So isn't it interesting to note what form it seems to have taken? Look at verse 9. Look at it. You see the form? Peter says, don't insult when you are insulted like don't revile when you are reviled and he keeps he goes on to talk about keeping your tongue what sort of opposition is it these people are facing verbal there's other forms but primarily is verbal so it's these people being ridiculed there's defamation of character going on just people being insulted for the christian church and aren't you with me doesn't that sound a little bit familiar to you it really does in my life like think about it in the streets of london if we're going to be opposed or persecuted it's unlikely that you and i are going to get beaten right that might happen today in london that's unlikely it's unlikely we're going to get chucked in jail how are we opposed if we're going to be opposed we're going to be ridiculed so the kids in school or people at university, or with your family you don't believe, or with your work colleagues, or your neighbor, you, you're a bigot! You're backwards! You're, you're an idiot! You're just following some weird superstition, right? The, the attacks are going to be verbal attacks. Given the relevance of that, I think we've got to do a couple of things here. One, we need to hear Peter's command very clearly and carefully... I'll show you what I mean. Like, I'm, I'm amazed by how many writers sum up the instruction in verse 9 like this. Now, you listen to this and see if you agree that this is what Peter's saying. So, I've, I've read this. I'll quote it so that I'm not doing anyone a disfavor. Listen. So, the basic teaching in verse 9 is that of non-retaliation. The idea that when we as a Christian are mistreated we should pay back we should not pay back like for like so you look at verse 9 is the idea there that of non-retaliation can i read it to you see what you think so peter says god says to you do not repay evil for evil but on the contrary bless do you, does anyone see my point am i alone on this what God is calling for here is much, much more than a non-retaliatory spirit. Do you see? It's not just if you're insulted, make sure you don't insult. It doesn't stop there. The command is actually you take a positive step towards that person. You see if you can act well towards that person. Do you see? That's the first thing we've got to do. The second thing we've got to to do is understand what that means. Because you're with me. That's not straightforward. So what do I do with my neighbor? for instance. So my neighbor does this all the time. I'll be going out to a church meeting and I will meet him invariably when I'm going out to some meeting and I'll get this from him all the time. Oh, Andy, a way to pray for people, are we, Andy? A way to bash more people with your Bible, Andy. Consistently, consistently getting. So what does it mean to bless that man? Do I in the street hold up my hands? and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you? Is that the sort of thing that God is calling for here, is it? Well, no. And here I want to suggest to you three explanatory applications for when you are ridiculed by your unbelieving family member, when you are ridiculed at work or by your friends because you follow Jesus. First is this. To bless that person surely means you ought to pray for them I mean, you you all noticed, didn't you, in the reading that Peter uses the Old Testament? You noticed, did you, the quote from Psalm 34? Well, what is perhaps slightly less obvious is that here Peter is standing on Jesus' own teaching itself. So you cast your mind back to the Sermon on the Mount again, right? And I know you've got your masks on, but I want to hear it. So I'm going to to leave it blank. You tell me. You can pretend because nobody's going to know in your mouth. But you can fill in the blank here. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 44? You ready? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You get it? Love your enemies and, what was it? Pray for those who persecute you. And friend, if you are being ridiculed, if you are struggling just now with opposition, surely that's for you. Surely, if we're to bless that person, it involves prayer. You pray for their life, you pray for their work, you pray for their family, but you pray for their salvation. Second, to bless surely means that you are to do good to that person. In the book that I'm reading... Uh, this week, uh, I, I read a lovely story. I'll share it with you very, very briefly. It's a story of a Christian officer in the army. And this officer is receiving just hatred from one particular colleague. So every, they're in the barracks, okay, in the barracks every night. And this Christian officer is trying to be a witness. And he, and he, he lies down every, on his bed every night and he gets out his Bible out and he prays and he reads scripture and every night without fail this the guy opposite him hurls insults and hurls abuse at this christian man but one night it changes the story goes that this hostile officer he doesn't just hurl insults what he does is he takes off his military boots you know those really stinking filthy heavy steel toe cap boots and he hurls this at this christian man and it smacks him in the face as he's re- reading in the bible things calm down go to sleep next morning this hostile soldier gets <laughs> he gets the fright of his life because he wakes up and he finds his boots back exactly where they should be at the bottom of the foot of his bed the thing is the the boots had been cleaned and the boots had been polished uh, by that christian man and if you are in this room just now where you are facing jibes because you're a Christian and you're facing just the sniping that goes on, surely you see a lesson. If we're to bless those who who persecute and oppose us, what do we do? You have to be imaginative and you have to give some thought. To how, can you, how can you pour out blessing? How can you act for good towards that person who opposes you? And then the third one, we've got to pray. We've got to do good. But to bless, surely it means that we have to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ to our opponent. Like if you've been here for these sermon series, and if you know First Peter at all, you're surely with your minister here when I say, what strikes you is the evangelistic heart that Peter has have you noticed that all the way through? He genuinely, genuinely wants people saved. It's not a pretense. It's not fake. He longs for people. Why are we to do the things we're to do? Why are we to act in a certain way amongst the ungodly? Peter says, you do this so that they will see and come to glorify God by believing. So in light of his evangelistic heart and in light of the fact that to bless involves God's favor, surely, what does Peter have in view here? We return insults with evangelism, with Christian witness, that even if people are trying to hold us down, we seek to hold out the word of truth. So maybe this is very real for you. Maybe you are facing jives, abuse, ridicule, defamation of character because you are a Christian. What does God want from you? Yes, you stand back. You don't trade in insults, of course, but it's more, isn't it? Let's seek to speak to Jesus. Let's even ask our persecutor, excuse me, can I please, please tell you about Jesus of Nazareth? So we've been face to face with our fellow Christian, face to face with a hostile unbeliever. But we'll close, right? We'll we'll end uh, with a third thing, that we are here face to face with God. Um, Over lockdown, My children, all three of them, have been obsessing, probably to to maintain their sanity, in amongst homeschool. They have been obsessing with puzzles. So my mum, in uh, all of her uh, wisdom, has been sending south very frequently riddles for the children to try and work out all the time. Riddle after riddle after riddle. I hate these riddles. I, I absolutely loathe these riddles. In fact, I've got a live feed, and my mom might even be watching. <laughs> no more riddles. Uh, but all the time. I think that I hate them. The kids love them. I think part of the reason they like them is that some of them, at least, aren't all that easy. There's lots that are easy, but some of them are not easy. So the kids love them because the joy comes. They have to work really hard to understand you know, that's a great thing. You know, the, the satisfaction of that, they have to work hard to understand. I genuinely think there's something similar here. Because if you're a believer, if you're trusting in Christ this morning, then God gives you a promise in this section of Scripture. You've got, you've got to take it from me, having wrestled with this all week, that it's a promise we have to work hard to understand. So look at the end of verse 9 to see what God promises you. Now, do you see the end of verse 9? So if we respond well to a hostile unbeliever, why do we do that? That we may obtain, what is it, a, a, a blessing? Now, that is difficult to understand. So the, the, the first thing we've got to think about is like, what's the logic there? Like, why is that? Now, even if you didn't look at the end of verse 9, please look at verse 12 to see the logic. No, look at it. This is critical to the end of the sermon. Do you see what happens? We're told that God looks in two directions. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the the face of the Lord turns away from or is against those who do evil. Why do we receive blessing if we respond appropriately to an unbeliever? Why? Because God is not passive. God is not passive. He's not inactive. God does one of two things, doesn't he? Ultimately, he turns his face toward the righteous in blessing. And ultimately, God turns His face away from the wicked. But then wait, what do you want to know? Come on, God's promising you blessing if you're a Christian. What do you want to know? You no, know I want to know what's the content. Like if I'm good to my neighbour who's completely sniding me and being cheeky to me all the time, if I respond appropriately, do I get a Lamborghini? Do I get a Ferrari? What's the blessing? Is it some sort of spiritual? Fever, blessing that comes into my life just now is it what's the content of the blessing but i do think you already know the answer because i'm repeating myself every week where does peter look always in this letter where does he always look he looks time and again i hate doesn't he the revelation of Jesus Christ to the time where our salvation is to be revealed. It's that moment he's just mentioned in verse 7. What sort of blessing is this? Come on. It's eschatological blessing. Blessing received or blessing revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've got to face facts. Maybe that's confusing for some of us in here. Is it confusing? The idea that if we respond well to a hostile unbeliever, we receive blessing in the last day, that salvation is to be... Had. Doesn't this sound like works? Like, doesn't this sound like we're earning something from God? Well, you know as well as I do, it cannot be that. It's behavioral stuff. It must be evidence of our salvation. Peter's done everything in his power to show you salvation is a gift from God. But because this is confusing... I want to end this morning reminding you of what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because maybe there's people in the room who don't know Jesus. Maybe, surely, it's the case that there can be people watching online now or later on who are unbelieving and outside of Christ. If that is you, I'd ask you, what do you think happens in salvation? How are, do you think you are made right with God. I mean do you think it's you tidy up your life do you think that it's you simply align yourself to morally respectable people in a church and God will look favorably eternally on that let me read you God's verdict on me and you and everybody else Romans three ten, God says there's none righteous no not one but isn't that amazing? of uh, qualities and traits uh, in Scripture that mark our relationship with our uh, fellow believers. We thank you that we see into Christ. We see into the heart of the Son of God. We thank you that in Christ was unity of mind, of sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness of heart, and... A humility of mind. Lord God, we thank you that this brought him to the cross. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has done all that we might receive your blessing. And we pray, worshipping you, we pray in wonder. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.